1: Welcome to Far-Fetched Fables, part of the District of Wonders Network, featuring Starship Sofa, Tales to Terrify, Crime City Central, and Protecting Project Pulp. Everyone has a story in the District of Wonders. Come and find yours.
2: Good morning, good afternoon, good evening. Wherever you are, wherever you're listening from, this is Far-Fetched Fables. Welcome to show number 20. We have two wonderful stories for you today, so let's get to it. First up, we're going to listen to The Shooter at the Hartrock Waterhole by Bill Congreve. Bill is an award-winning writer, editor and independent publisher of Miradans books. His stories have appeared in a number of countries in many and varied publications. His most recent collection is Souls Along the Meridian. He won the Peter McNamara Achievement Award in 2012 and has acted as judge for the Aurelis Awards on nine occasions. He works as a technical writer and editor in the emergency services sector. And you can learn more by following the link on the Triple F. It's read for us today by Eric Luke, who is the screenwriter of the Joe Dante film Explorers, which is currently in development as a remake, the comic books Ghost and Wonder Woman, and he wrote and directed the Not Quite Human films for Disney TV. His current project, Interference, is a meta-horror audiobook about an audiobook that kills. It's available free on iTunes and at quillhammer.com. Links, of course, on the Triple F. So, let's hear... THE SHOOTER AT THE HEART ROCK WATERHOLE by Bill Congreve
1: One. The rifle kicked, and one of the creatures, the beautiful one, was dead. But the weird, as Dad would have called it, began long before then. Two days ago, I shot and killed two sparrows, and a rabbit I'd called Attitude. Right after, I buried them out in the deep sand away from the water. At dawn yesterday, I smelled them as I woke. The sun filtered through the needles of a lone desert oak straight into my eyes. I rolled onto my stomach, lifted my head, and there they lay. "'just outside the tent fly-screen. "'The corpses had been dug from their half-meter-deep holes "'and had been laid out on the orange sand and the leaf litter, "'as neatly as you like, "'half a meter from where my head lay on the pillow. "'I hadn't heard a thing. "'It was an unusual waterhole, "'a gently sloping dome of granite the color of rusting iron, "'maybe fifty hectares in area.' that the maps called Heart Rock rose above the desert where I had camped. Millions of years of sparse rainfall, or a glacier in the last ice age, had carved the rock so that the water on that side of the dome all ran off in one spot. At that point there was a lip in the granite about five meters above the floor of the desert, and below that a pristine rock pool surrounded by a bed of sand the color of red ochre. From high above, the dome would look like a heart, with the high ground up near the point aiming north, and the waterhole nestled in the heart of the V in the south. From the edge of the water, a dry, sandy creek bed four or five meters across ran a half-kilometer out into the desert, where it ended in a salt lake maybe a hundred meters wide. A a once-in-a-decade flood would see the creek run for a couple of hours, the lake fill, and the whole place seemingly dry out two or three days later. And if some idiot were to walk out on the salt lake in the couple of months after the rain, they would crack through the crust of salt and drown in the mud. Stunted bloodwood surrounded the water. The single desert oak grew amongst the spinifex fifty meters out along the creek bed. I didn't even know what desert it was a part of, just that it was too far north and west to be called a part of the Nullarbor Plain. It smelled and sounded like the end of the world, empty, with an aftertaste of dust, eucalyptus, the sowing of leaves, and then silence. The animals smelled like dead, wet fur, but with a gamey scent. I stared at them for a couple of seconds and then scrambled out of bed and into a pair of shorts and running shoes. My dad's Anschutz was where I had left it, in the tent at the foot of the bed, but the target rifle wasn't what I needed now. The Remington was in the Toyota, a pump-action shotgun instead of a single-shot 22 rifle. I grabbed the machete, pulled down the zipper on the insect screen, and bolted outside, running for the Toyota. When I had the Remington in my hands, I I shouted, "'Hello!' "'No answer. "'I knew that, of course. "'Not another human being for two hundred kilometers in any direction. "'That was part of the job description. "'But the bird's feathers had been brushed flat, "'and the blood had been washed from the exit wound in the rabbit's skull. "'Stunted eucalyptus and acacia scrub surrounded Hart Rock's margins, "'living on what little water ran off the rock. "'Not enough bush to hide anybody.' I know because I checked. Standing on the peak, the binoculars showed me nothing but a mob of kangaroos resting in the lee of some trees a couple of kilometers away. I knew about them. They came down to the water every night. Kangaroos don't dig dead animals out of half-meter-deep holes and wash the bodies. Hello! I shouted again. After those first moments of surprise, I hadn't felt threatened. But that was easy. I had a shotgun in my hand. Yet somebody, somebody who enjoyed playing games, had dug up those animals. I wasn't alone. Back at camp, I leaned the Remington against a tree and fired up my small gas stove. I put enough coffee in the plunger for two. Perhaps the smell of coffee brewing might draw whoever was out there into the open. Some old aboriginal, I expected. Or a prospecting crew playing silly buggers. My mate James was going to study geology when he got to university. This would be his idea of a joke. But if a prospecting crew had been responsible, where were they? A half hour later, I spotted bare footprints leading down into the water. The first ten days, I didn't shoot a thing. Since then, each bird I'd shot I'd buried in a separate grave. "'I would cut a couple of twigs, strip them of their bark, "'tie them into a small cross. "'I called the corpse of the first sparrow "'an insensitive dependence on bureaucratic conditions,' "'in a tribute to two favorite authors, "'wrote the name in pen on the wood "'and put the cross at the head of the bird's grave. "'The second bird was another sparrow. "'It was Trixie, after Dad's old falcon utility.' I chopped the legs off both of those and tied them to a tree branch to dry out, and for the ants to get to. I felt queasy at that, but my new boss in Eucla wanted trophies until he knew he could trust me. A tiny flock of starlings interrupted breakfast one day in my third week. There were six in all. That was slaughter. I waited with the Remington loaded with buckshot till they were close, and then let fly. Five loads of buckshot in seven seconds, spinning from side to side like a maniac. Afterwards, I was a little disturbed at how much I had enjoyed it. When I buried those birds, I took special care. I named the first rabbit I saw Attitude, but missed the killing shot. Got away with a graze in its neck, but didn't go far. Palm tree, coconuts, and ten Enderley Avenue. Were buried alongside the birds now the plot of graves a hundred meters out in the desert measured six by three well five by three with three holes if you counted the bodies next to my tent I also had books but I couldn't spend all day reading coffee's on I shouted nobody came of course I took the job a month ago right after dad's funeral the Western Australia Agricultural Department employed hunters in the desert to shoot birds, the non-native starlings, sparrows, doves, and shit they've got on the east coast, which hadn't yet made it across the desert. Starlings are the big one. They were desperate enough to find people willing to live in total isolation, fifteen hundred kilometers from Perth, that they weren't worried. I had just turned eighteen, only that I had my shooter's license. In the desert, the waterholes are hundreds of kilometers apart. A bird flies in, desperate for water. It goes anywhere else. It dies of thirst. It settles in for a couple of days, recovers a little, maybe moves on, maybe sticks around and dies of boredom. Think of the wider picture. A slow migration of non-native animals into what is still, even with all of the wheat, sheep, cattle, grapes, bees, and shit, a fairly pristine environment. Add a hunter with a few loads of buckshot, and you've got instant environmentalism. Either that, or instant protection of commercial agricultural interests. I wasn't sure which. Killing things to save others. Ironic, huh? James and I had broken into the local kindergarten at midnight on James's 16th birthday to drink a couple of beers and watch The Exorcist on the school VCR. James loved doing things like that. He'd spent the whole next day laughing. Two years later, to the very day, it had been a bus with a load of kids from that same kindergarten that had killed Dad in a pedestrian crossing. More irony. Now here I was, in the desert. That was when I heard the flutter of wings. Weak, tiny wings. Not like the small hawks which chase the insects at night more like a thirsty sparrow. About twenty meters up the rock slope from where I was camped, a clump of spinifex grew from a crack in the rock overlooking the waterhole. I found my keys, put the Remington behind the seat, and locked the Toyota for the first time in weeks. Then I grabbed the Anschutz from the tent and headed up the slope. In the last few weeks, I had spent hours every day lying beside that spinifex, just out of reach of the needles. Why the Anschutz? Every weekend when I was a kid, Dad would take that thing out to the Blacktown Pistol Club range in Western Sydney for club shoots. While he was alive, he never let me use it, just bought me a little Winchester. When he died, I sold the Winchester and kept the Anschutz. The target rifle wasn't designed for hunting. Ring sights instead of telescopic. Small bore, single shot with no magazine. Floating barrel, wrong ammunition, and as heavy as all shit. I'd use a sling wrapped around my arm just to hold the thing steady and give myself a chance. But I'd only missed once, and Attitude the Rabbit had only bounced around out there in the desert a day or two before coming back to the water and his second bullet. I began using the Anschutz because it was Dad's and because the soft-nosed lead bullets it demanded made a mess of any small animal. I kept using it, because of how I felt. Hitting a two-centimeter target with it at fifty meters in these conditions was more an art form than a matter of brute strength. Sparrows, but two of them. I should have brought the Remington after all and gone closer. Too late now. I squirmed around until I was comfortable put an extra couple of cartridges on the rock where I could reach them in a hurry and waited the birds pecked at the sand and hopped down to the water aim a little high the ring sights blotting out all but the small form of the first bird breathe out gently watch the sights drift down across the target hold the breath take up the first pressure in the trigger hold steady Of course, I'd be sacked if the department ever found out about the Anschutz. Squeeze the trigger. A brown smear across the sights. Slight recoil. A body dropped to the sand. And the sparrows flew away. I felt sick. She was a kind of dusky black. But not aboriginal. Her features were like nothing I've ever seen. Even in the tourist markets in Fremantle. Eyes slanting up, nictitating membranes, ears that were more like nubs surrounding a depressed pattern in her skull than human ears, webbed fingers and toes. She could have been fifteen, a little younger than me. She was naked. She was dead. Yin and yang, Dad had always said. Light and dark little bit of the light, had just left the water-hole. I had my father, Rudolph Cartwright, cremated. I took the official urn of ashes that contained a bit of Dad, a bit of coffin, and bits of a few other dead people and their coffins as well, given how busy the crematorium was, to Bluff Knoll in the Stirling Ranges. The mountain was the first place Dad and I had stopped at for more than a few hours on our trip from Sydney, after Mum went back to her family in Ireland. October 22nd, at 11.15pm. Four years ago. Her plane took off. And despite all her promises, she never came back. That was a confused time. Neither Dad nor I had wanted to stay in Sydney. He left his job and took me out of school. Both of us wanted a fresh start. We sold everything we couldn't fit in the car. Only when we drove away did we decide where it was we wanted to go. Dad and I had fought tooth and nail for four days, crossing the Nullarbor. By the time we had reached the Stirling Ranges northeast of Albany, a day after leaving Norseman, we couldn't stand the sight of each other. He had climbed the steep, winding track below the cliffs and around and up to the back of the mountain, while I sat at the base in a sulk. Then I had become afraid that he really was sick of me and would just keep on walking down the far side of the mountain and away. Or worse, I ran up the mountain. On the top, we hugged and cried. Burials and graves are for the living, not the dead. Bluff Knoll was where my memories of my father and my impressions of place and time were inseparable. Symbols. After I left Perth on my way out to the Agricultural Department's office in Eucla, I had stopped at the ranges. I climbed Bluff Knoll in the dark and buried the urn near the crest, about 2 a.m., 300-meter cliff on one side, a view across a hundred kilometers to the ocean on the other. It was windy and raining. I don't know why I thought of her As her, she had no breasts, no nipples, no genitals. Set in her navel was a dull chunk of black rock that wouldn't lift out. She could have been a boy, but for the shape of her face and her rounded hips. The question only entered my mind as I carried her back to the Toyota and the first aid kit. I looked down at her in my arms and saw her full lips. And her long, wet hair framing her face, and had no doubt. Perhaps it was her hair more than anything else. Wild and long, straight and thick, the color of wild henna. The bullet hole was in the side of her chest, below her left armpit, above her heart. There was no exit hole. At first, her blood had run freely. Now it had slowed to a dribble. By the time I reached the campsite, "'It had stopped altogether. "'I bandaged the wound, "'the scissors clinking against the stone in her navel. "'It was magnetized. "'I thumped on her breastbone "'in an imitation of the CPR I'd seen, "'and gave her mouth to mouth. "'Nothing. "'So I did it all again, "'her body unfeeling under my hands. "'I don't know how long it took me to stop. "'I fell back against the wheel of the Toyota "'and stared at her. "'I stopped staring.' when I began shivering. It was night. The full moon at least a third of the way across the sky. Twelve hours since I'd shot her. I'd probably fallen asleep, but my head didn't feel like it. A bit like having a hangover without having the beers to get me there. I dreamt of water, but my eyes felt full of sand. I wandered around the campsite in a daze, "'then staggered across to the waterhole to wash my face. "'With the moonlight and the clear desert sky, "'I didn't need a torch. "'I'd walked this route a hundred times in the last few weeks "'and knew every shrub, every twig, "'every boulder hidden under the desert floor. Heart Rock loomed above. "'The trees rustled in a light breeze. "'Then I tripped and fell on my face. "'I turned. "'Nothing.' But it had felt like a branch coming alive under my foot. A snake? The sand lay bare under the moonlight, the nearest cover meters away. Perhaps a death adder sleeping in the sand. No, not in the cold at night. I crawled forward to the water's edge, dipped my hands, gasped. The water was freezing. Nothing in the desert in summer should feel that cold. I lifted my hands from the water. Ice crackling from my fingers. Not just my perception, then. It was freezing. Good. I splashed my face, opening my eyes to the water, needing to wash them out, needing to force myself awake. I gasped again, the cold driving under my eyelids. I shook my head. "'wiped the ice and water from my face. "'For seconds I saw nothing through the moisture "'but the blur of bright moonlight to my right. "'Then the blur shifted "'and spun into a spiral of stars, "'twisting before my eyes, "'covering the whole of my vision, "'shifting until it was centered in front of me, "'dropping. "'I fell face-first into the freezing water "'and bounced in shock to my feet.' for seconds unable to force my chest to go through the motions of breathing. Shaking with the cold, I stepped back. The moon was high on my right, back where it should be. Still water glinted with reflected moonlight. The dome of heart rock loomed above. A wavelet rippled across the surface. Something was in the water. Over against the rock face, in the dark. Some sort of native rat? A rabbit going for a swim? It'd freeze its ass off. I laughed nervously and stepped back again. The next wave splashed across the sand and wet my feet. I turned and ran three or four paces and looked back. The waterhole was only twenty meters across. There was no wind. How could it throw a wave a meter up onto the shore? But the girl belonged here. That much I did know. She had deliberately taken a bullet to save the sparrows. She had dug up the dead animals and laid them outside my tent. She had obviously thought of herself as the protector of this place. I went back to camp and picked her up. Halfway back to the waterhole, my biceps stinging in agony, I switched her from my arms into a fireman's carry yin and yang, light and dark, with the girl's body pressing against my shoulders, forcing my head forwards. I didn't see the waterhole until I was only a couple of paces away, but then I swayed to a standstill and stared in terror. The water glowed from below, a glow that I had once seen in a movie as an orbiting spaceship moved from the shadow cast by a planet toward the emergent glow of an accelerated sunrise. Can you imagine it? That glow of promise before the spaceship moves into the light? Now, turn that wondrous glow into a photo-negative of absolute dark. Not so much the absence of light, though definitely that, but a covenant that, wherever this darkness came, light would never return. Above that darkness, myriad glints of light reflected like stars. And above the glinting light was the ice, Ice on the sand, ice on the rock, ice weighing down the branches of trees and flattening the shrubs and the spinifex. Then I realized the glinting on the surface of the water was ice, too, a sterile reflection of the moon. A tide of dead life lay at the water's edge. Small fish, frogs, weeds, reeds, freshwater shrimp, insects, a couple of crayfish. The life of the waterhole scoured out and left to die. All this in just a couple of minutes. I put the girl down, picked up a weakly struggling fish, and tossed it in the water amongst the ice. Seconds later, waves pushed the frozen corpse back to the shore. The waterhole had become as sterile as the backside of the moon, as ancient as the surface of this land before life began. Yet it held within it the threat of more sterility. I. Would be made as sterile and lifeless as the ageless atoms from which my body was formed, if I ventured any nearer. The sense of wonder remained, but the wonder had become a dreadful, bleak thing. This was the wonder of a raging fire, of acid burns, of the knowledge of the end, life destroyed and denied. In a daze I picked up the girl. I had killed her. And she deserved better than a burial in this place. Two. Three days it took to reach the highway. I left before dawn that same night, broke camp, packed the tent, bedroll, and other stuff in the back of the Toyota, and then stopped and thought twice about what I wanted to do. Just behind the cabin, The Toyota truck had a massive chest of half-centimeter-thick galvanized steel the width of the entire tray. For the firearms and ammunition, the chest had two heavy brass padlocks, each with different keys. It was only when I discovered that her body fit neatly into this gun locker that I finally decided to leave. I put a pillow under her head, stood watching the dusky glow of her skin and her hair in the fading moonlight for a few seconds covered her with a blanket and locked her down the clock on the dash said 4:17 a.m. as i began bashing my way south through the scrub and across the gibber plain a plain of loose stones of all sizes from pebbles to boulders lying on a strata of solid rock in this case granite the stones squeezed up from under the tires and knocked against the chassis 530 kilometers the first third of it over open terrain the rest over the kind of dirt track that carries a vehicle once a month. By day I drove, by night I dreamed of water, serene, rippling pools under trees in the moonlight, great ocean swells, streams and torrents of water, all empty of life. When I finally drove over the edge of the escarpment and down toward the air highway, I hadn't seen another human being, a living one at any rate for weeks. I stopped at the first roadhouse I came to—a combination petrol station, pub, and restaurant, with a couple of motel rooms, a parking area for caravans and trucks, a tent area, and a small zoo out back for the kids and the tourists. Four weeks ago I had stopped here and put up a tent amongst the cages. The pump attendant was a burly, irascible middle-aged man who remembered me. "'Going home already?' "'They send me all the way out to this spot in the middle of nowhere, "'and some buggers already there. "'Typical bureaucrats.' "'A little girl in a faded pink cotton dress and sand shoes with no socks "'carried a spade, dragged a dead wombat by the left rear leg past the petrol pumps. "'She looked at me curiously, "'like she was glad a stranger was present to witness this, "'and then turned to the pump attendant. "'You can't wait until tonight, Daddy.' "'He's starting to smell.' "'Daddy, the owner, obviously, looked embarrassed. "'Ah, the family pets. "'We've had a bit of bad luck recently,' he said to me. "'The girl dragged the wombat across the highway "'to a string of crosses planted in the verge on the far side. "'The owner waved in the direction of the pet cemetery. "'I want our customers to know we're doing the right thing.' Lots of people used to stay here because of them. What's killing them? He shrugged. Since the wife's gone, they've just... died. Grief, I guess. (laughs) They miss her. They got names? I looked at the girl, dragging a couple of branches to cover the wombat. Might make it easier for the girl. You reckon? Yeah, I do. I reckon I'll do it my way. Less arguments. A trail of blood followed the dead wombat across the roadhouse forecourt. Looked to me like it might have been a bullet in the head killed it. I paid cash and got out of there. The Air Highway is one of only two paved roads into Western Australia for the entire two and a half thousand kilometers of border. It is a place where a half dozen roadhouses have their own time zone, one which differs to those on either side not by one hour or a half hour, but by three-quarters of an hour, and which the owner of one of those roadhouses, being a patriotic West Australian citizen, refuses to use, preferring Western Standard Time instead. The centre of population is the village of Eucla, of maybe fifty souls, most of them government, and some of them with the same job of killing birds I have. When I finish at Hart Rock, I'll be stationed there. If I was to scrabble in the dirt at any of the rest areas on the highway, I would find the fossilized seashells of an ancient seabed. Fossicking for meteorites is prohibited because they can be found, can be picked up off burning sand, providing a history of both the land and the solar system. In summer, the daytime temperature can reach fifty five degrees Celsius or a hundred and thirty degrees, in the old scale Dad always used. The economy consists of selling fuel, beer, hamburgers, and a place to sleep to truckies, and to travelers who, for whatever private reason, would not catch a plane. The land was empty. But driving through it, I always expected to find something wonderful just around the next corner. Heat shimmered off the highway ahead. The road followed the base of an escarpment, the shore of the ancient sea. I didn't know what brand the trees were. That was a word James used once in biology class. Brand. The teacher told him we were talking about a form of life, a species. Not when some accountant sells them to you in a supermarket, you're not, James had replied. Whichever brand they were, the trees were stunted, dark green, all but identical and scarce. It made me wonder what brand the corpse I had in the gun locker was. It was a horrible thought, but I still laughed. A truck rose out of the heat haze ahead. The shimmering flowed down the road towards the Toyota and surrounded it, floating up from the bitumen until it seemed I was looking through a sheen of water. Breaking gently to keep control, I concentrated on staying on the road, on the white lines passing the edge of the Toyota's hood. Silhouettes of fish swam in the corners of my eyes. One swam at my face. I flinched. A shadow passed overhead, and I looked up at the massive roiling underside of a breaker rolling in against the shore. The blast of a truck horn dragged my attention back to the road. Waves above the road. The haze disappeared, as did all thoughts of brand-name corpses. That kind of thinking worked in cities, not out here. I felt haunted. The tension I suddenly felt made concentrating easy after that. What was I doing, touring the back roads of Australia with a corpse hidden in the vehicle? I had no answers. The police patrolled this road, pulling vehicles over at random to search for drugs. What if they stopped me? Whatever this quest was that I had found myself on, I wanted it done. That night, I dreamed of water again. I was back at the roadhouse, standing in the middle of the highway, trucks roaring past in the night air. It rained, and the clean, healing water ran off the road. Soaking deep into the verge, amongst the graves. Early morning twilight woke me. The ground was soggy, the tent wet. It had rained. Letting it all dry out a little before I packed, I put water on to boil for coffee, walked out of the scrub onto the highway. The trucks that had roared past all night had gone. The bloodied corpse of a kangaroo, crows picking at its flesh, explained a thump I had heard just before falling asleep the night before. The glow of light where the highway met the horizon signaled dawn. The sunrise glinted off wet asphalt, four lustrous trails converging on the disk of the sun on the horizon, light reflecting from the sheen of water in the shallow furrows pressed into the road by trucks. Endless traffic, but a moment of beauty. I stared for a moment then went back to the gas stove and boiling water. I needed to look at her. Sipping hot coffee, I unlocked the tool chest. This was the morning of the fourth day in desert heat, and she hadn't started to smell yet. God knows what I would do when that happened. Pack her in ice? Drive the desert in a pickup truck, weeping condensation? But she should smell. She was dead. No heartbeat. And it was my fault, because I had shot her. I tried to imagine explaining her to the police. Couldn't. Was she even human? I wondered. Maybe that would get me off in a court. Can you murder a non-human? But it didn't save me from knowing I had killed. I lifted the lid. She was lying there, in water a foot deep. "'her hair floating in a ring about her face like a dark sunrise. "'I dropped the coffee and fell into the mud. "'You okay there, lad?' "'Now I spotted the caravan back in the trees. "'Other travelers had come into the rest area overnight. "'Shit!' "'I managed to slam the lid. "'After that I had no choice but to accept an invitation to breakfast.' all the time thinking of what else I had seen there in the gun locker other than a quarter ton of water that had appeared from nowhere. A fine patchwork of dark golden scales the size of pinheads covering the skin around her wound and the black stone in her navel now shiny and smooth like polished hematite. I didn't try to figure it out. The weird was following me and it wouldn't leave until this was resolved. But now, I was certain that I was haunted, and of what it was that haunted me. A halo of hair drifting in sparkling water. Before leaving, I pulled out a map. The Stirling Ranges were not quite a thousand kilometers away, give or take fifty kilometers depending on which route west I took from Norseman. The Stirling Ranges? I realized then where I had been heading since I had loaded the girl's body into the gun locker back at Heart Rock. Bluff Noll, I wanted to bury her beside my father. It had become that important. And urgent a thousand kilometers. I could do that in a day. Then I wanted to leave and never go back. I made it onto the road a few minutes before 8 a.m., estimated time of arrival, dusk. The day blurred into a drone of heavy 4 by 4 tires and a litany of places and names. That I would never forget. Kaiguna, and the hundred and forty kilometers straightaway. Norseman, where the tallest hills are mine tailings and slag. The ghost town of Dundas, where I ate the cold chicken burger. The dirt road to Lake King, with the most desolate and most desecrated roadside rest area I had seen. Lake King itself, and Lake Grace, both of them salt, but with townships made possible by damming the runoff from outcrops of granite similar to heart rock, dams made by circling the rock with a wall of bricks four or five courses high that slopes slightly downhill as it follows the contour around the rock, trapping the water and guiding it into a hollow on one side. The Palinup River, the first watercourse I had crossed that actually had water in it in three thousand kilometers of driving, a genuine goddamned river that the map told me ran all the way to the southern ocean. I missed rivers. Western Australia just doesn't do running water like other places. And that made me think of the waterhole at Hart Rock, a rare and wonderful place that wouldn't exist at all but for an accident of topography in the bedrock millions of years earlier. But the very scarcity of water also made the waterhole a trap. How long had the girl been there? By 10 p.m. I was sitting on top of Bluff Knoll, Dad's urn cradled on my lap. Once I had reached the peak, it had been the work of minutes to find Dad's grave and dig the urn out. I would never be able to fit both the girl and the urn among the rocks in just that spot, and I wanted to see the urn again, feel it in my hands. The stars were bright, and a stiff wind blew in from the ocean. A glow in the east signaled moonrise. The lights of Albany and Mount Barker shone to the southwest civilization six hundred meters below was the car park and the toyota with its precious cargo the gun locker was still full of water the girl was still dead the wound in her side a little more overgrown with the same scaly skin i had seen that morning the big change was that the stone in her navel now glowed green up here "'I might be able to squeeze an urn between the boulders "'and cover it with a scrabbling of dirt and mud. "'But a body? "'And if I did find a spot, "'I would have to lug her all the way up, "'600 meters vertical like one giant flight of stairs. "'I wasn't looking forward to it, "'and the pause mm-hmm. gave me time to think. "'She wasn't human, I knew that, now, "'but her hair and her face "'haunted my every waking thought.' I even wondered if she was truly dead. Probably not. Something was expected of me, and I didn't know what it was. Had I done the right thing taking her away from Heart Rock? I didn't know that either. But what was done was done, and I had to live with it. I turned and aimed the torch up into the dark at Alpha Centauri and watched the beam disappear. But Bluff Knoll wasn't the place for her, and that made me sad. I dreamed of water. Bright moonlight rippled into my eyes. The moon was close, the disk huge, white, and smooth. A lake stretched for kilometers to my left. Just across the way, bare, jagged mountains reared from the water into the night. A meteor blazed across the sky. Dimmed out, and thunder rolled across the water and echoed off the cliffs. There were no trees, no grass, no bushes, no animals or insects. If life existed here yet, it was in the water or in the sky. Beside me, my father's urn rested on the coarse sand. The place was sterile and reminded me of Heart Rock after the waterhole had gone mad, but now I didn't feel threatened. Instead, I felt old. A hand thrust above the surface of the water. It looked human, except it was covered in fine scales. A plain gold ring circled the forefinger. The hand held a naked baby above the water. I was still and silent, unable to move, but I felt my presence there was sanctioned as a witness. The hand threw the baby up onto the shore. Where it floated gently to rest, beside the urn, the hand disappeared. And a woman cried. My heart wrenched at the sorrow contained in that sound. Awake, as if something swimming under the water drew away from the shore. The baby grew into a child and stood up on the sand. I recognized the features of the girl I had shot. The girl picked up the urn and then waved goodbye to the lake. She disappeared, whisked away like a reflection between mirrors toward the sheen of moonlight on a distant, much smaller body of water. When I woke, I picked up Dad's urn and climbed down off the mountain. The sun was just rising above the horizon. Soon the tourists would arrive. I opened the gun locker and stood staring at her. Her wound had almost fully closed over, and dusky skin was growing over the scales. The stone at her navel blazed green in the sunlight. I lifted her head clear. Water dripped from her hair. I kissed her gently on the lips, once, and lowered her back under the surface. We were going back to Rock. 3. The void stood ahead in the night sky. It was like the black glow I'd seen in the water at Heart Rock, but now it stood above the landscape like a, a signal fire, the promise of darkness and emptiness, the removal of life. It wasn't a blackness. I could see the stars through it, and during the afternoon driving across the gibber guided by the GPS system, I could sense it behind the sunlight, had been able to sense it, Ever since turning off the air highway, the feeling overshadowed my impatience as the Toyota bounced laboriously across the stony plain. I had become attuned to the weird. When, as I got closer, the GPS went haywire, telling me I was in Rabaul of all places, the void stood like a beacon above the horizon, both guiding me onward, yet warning me away. In the gun locker, the girl's wound was healed waiting for her to come back to life. The water had drained away as inexplicably as it had come, expecting nothing but feeling an indefinable sense of what might be possible. I had nestled Dad's urn beside her head. Surely it couldn't work. He was dust. But she had healed. And I continued to hope. And the urn had been in my dream. Whatever was happening would soon be over. The attack began with a clunk of a stone. At first I thought it had been thrown up into the chassis by the wheels, but then the rattling clunk came again, from behind, against the side of the truck's bed, and instinctively I swung the wheel away from the sound. The next one I saw in the headlights, silhouetted against the lee side of one of the great sand dunes that ran north-south through the desert, parallel to my route. A rock, stirred from the gibber, hovered a moment, then came at the Toyota, accelerating, bouncing off the grill. I turned toward the dune and drove a little way up, where the sand was still firm, then drove along the side of it, away from the rocks on the desert floor. The Toyota leaned like a drunkard, and the wheel twisted in my hands. Steering in sand is like steering a boat. The wheels, acting like rudders, pointed where I needed to go. Keep the speed a steady forty kilometers per hour, and no sudden moves. An easy target. The stones came crashing in from the downhill side, aimed at the gun locker, a hail of stone out of the corner of my eye. But the locker was galvanized steel, the safest place she could be. The din was incredible. I drove hunched forward over the steering wheel. The window beside me shattered, showering me with glass, and I felt the passage of stones behind my head. Then the gibber stopped, the stony ground at the base of the dune becoming covered in sand. I slanted the Toyota down off the dune and drove on as fast as I dared, eager to cover as much distance as possible before the next assault. Here I was, delivering a dead girl into the heart of a psychic storm that would strip my bones of... I remembered once sitting on the beach at Cottesloe, watching the girls jogging past in their shorts and the sun setting behind the ships threading their way through the islands. James had asked if I believed in God. No, I said. Then he asked if I believed in anything else. Freedom, capitalism, terrorism. And I replied, Just more dogma. You've got to believe in something, he replied. Why? Then the sand began moving up around his legs. He looked at me and said, Please, help me. You've got to believe. I shook my head. The sand moved around his waist, then his chest, as if he were sinking into the beach. Please! Believe! No! I shouted. The sand covered his head, his fingers scrabbling at the surface as if he were trying to pull himself over the edge of a cliff. Please! He disappeared in the sand. The surface bulged, and then was still. Please believe? James would never say that. I slapped my face, and night returned. The false memory had been the next assault. What would be next? I wanted to turn around and drive back to Perth, leave the girl lying on the sand, and leave the waterhole to whatever it was becoming in her absence, yin and yang. A vision of long, henna-colored hair and a smiling face, a smile I had never seen, drifted before my eyes. The vision was followed by the memory of my father hugging me on top of Bluff Knoll. I couldn't betray those images. I wasn't alone in this. The void became clearly defined against the stars. It was nearer now, much nearer after the dream. The headlights showed tire tracks I had made eight days ago. Hartrock loomed ahead. I had been thinking of this for days, trying to decide what to do, trying to plan, but not knowing what I would face. Once again, the headlights showed stones stirring on the desert floor. I twisted the wheel away from the tracks I had been following and aimed the Toyota at the rock slope. The first rush saw me thirty meters up off the sand. But then I geared back into low and concentrated on the slope. A boulder trembled ahead, and I swerved, letting it thunder past. If I was at the peak, the goddamned waterhole couldn't get at me with rocks or boulders. It took five minutes to force the Toyota up the final two hundred meters. I stopped the truck and got out. For a moment, I was fooled by the stillness of the night. Then I looked up. The stars had gone out. I pulled out the Remington and aimed at the sky. The shotgun blasted into the darkness. The muzzle flash unnaturally dim. The crack of the shots muffled, like shooting with a blanket wrapped around the barrel. Shoot the sky! I laughed as I dropped the gun. Might as well piss into the wind. But I did it again. This time with the Anschutz. The bullet left a track like a meteor. I reloaded, fired again. Just fireworks. The only difference, one of effect, of my emotions. Should I believe? In what? I jumped back into the Toyota, switching on the headlights and letting it roll down the slope toward the waterhole. The quickest and easiest way to get the girl back into the water was to run the truck off the rock into the water. But could I walk out of here? Five and a half hundred kilometers of desert on foot? The desert would trap me, too. I needed the truck. The headlights dimmed. I braked, slipped the Toyota back into gear. The headlights dimmed further. Then I couldn't see at all. I couldn't risk the vehicle. Working by the feel of the steering wheel in my hands, I turned the Toyota so that it pointed across the slope and parked it. Then I climbed out and worked around to the back. I could see nothing. The vehicle rocked as if buffeted in a high wind. I fumbled the keys into the padlocks, threw back the lid of the gun locker, and the nothing became tinged with green, centered on the jewel in her navel. I felt inside the locker, found her, and pulled her over my shoulder. A fireman's carry, again, leaving one hand free. Dad's urn was next. Again, I felt that unreasonable, that impossible hope. The Toyota rocked again. I found the edge of the truck bed, sat, felt down with my feet until they touched rock. I stood there for a moment, feeling her hair against my arm. The void had a faint green tinge, the jewel in her navel blazing against my shoulders. I felt no heat. I couldn't even see the urn inches in front of my face when I held it up, just the void like green silt in water. I slid one foot in front of the other, feeling ahead for the surface. If I followed the steepest slope, I would find the waterhole. How far? A rhythmic pounding came from behind me, and I scrabbled sideways. There was a rush of air and the crashing of something massive through the soles of my boots. Another boulder. I hadn't given up. I had no time to be careful. I stepped out and then jogged down the slope.
0: Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you
1: in your weight loss journey. Hope, feeling with my feet for clues, madly waving the urn for balance, desperately searching my memory. What had Heart Rock looked like? The girl's weight slammed at my shoulders. My legs burned with the effort of staying on my feet. Air blasted past my face. The temperature crashed. Ice formed inside my mouth. Was I still going down? I closed my eyes and stood still a moment to be certain. I didn't fall, so my balance was good. Down was that way. The last of the air rushed past, and then I couldn't breathe at all. My lungs pumped in and out, but sucked at nothing. The void had become vacuum. How far? Another five paces, and I stumbled, crashed to my knees, pushed to my feet. Another ten paces. Soon I would fall and not get up. Then my right foot fell, scraped rock, and fell again. My left knee smashed into the edge of the rock, and I tumbled forwards. A burst of white lit the green. And that was all. I woke face down on the sand and shivered. Lifting my head, I saw blue sky, the she-oak out in the desert, my little row of animal graves, the dry creek bed, my old campsite. The void had gone. I rolled over and stood. The Toyota was in the most bizarre place. If I'd driven any further down the slope, it would have taken a nosedive over a ten-meter cliff. How I have found my way around that, I don't know. But I hadn't been alone. The water was at my feet. I saw tadpoles duck behind some reeds. Less life than there had been before. But life and already established, Dad's urn had gone. Hey! I shouted. No answer. Hey! What's your name? I called. Still no answer. I waded into the water, up to my knees. It was cold, but refreshingly so. Where is my father? I saw a ghostly image of the girl, against the wall of hard rock behind it a fading impression of other people my father an old woman a boy a pregnant teenage girl how many people had been cremated that day only one mattered i want him back i cried and splashed further into the pool I swam to the rock wall and tried to climb onto the slick surface, but fell back. He is my price for what you did. She was standing on the shore behind me. It was the first time I had seen her alive and whole, her hair falling past her shoulders, the stone once again a dead black thing in her navel. She was at once young lithe, and beautiful, but also old, geologically old. She didn't just live in this land, she was a part of it. I swam back across the waterhole, climbed out, and fell to my knees, unable to approach her, to touch her. How could I love something so old? I. Can't leave him here alone. Look at them, she waved at the other ghosts. None of them are alone. I stayed at the waterhole all that day, sitting on the sand, taking potshots with the Anschutz, watching the bullets flash into the water and minutes later wash up beside me on the sand. The game soured quickly and I threw the rifle into the water in disgust. (sighs) Dad was gone. That night, I dreamed of shooting her again, loading her back into the gun locker in the Toyota, and driving off, stealing the light away with me, leaving a decaying, ever-blackening void in the desert. I would find some secluded stretch of river in North Queensland and let the water there bring her back to life. I would live bathed in light, and the void would never touch me until the day I died. I woke in a panic sweat long before dawn. In the morning, I drove away. This time I headed north, further across the desert, and away from everything and everybody I had known.
2: Thanks so much for that reading, Luke. It gave me the shivers. If you'd like to hear more from Luke, you can go to... Well, just take a listen.
1: Something wants in. To your head. Through this audiobook. Interference by Eric Luke. An experiment in meta-horror. Available at quillhammer.com.
2: Just click play. Do you like to be thrilled? Then go there. Our second story today is called The Comb and it's written by Marley Yeomans. Marley and I played a hilarious and protracted game of email tag trying to get this story to Triple F, so I hope you enjoy it. I can't say enough good things about this author, who has been described as the best-kept secret among contemporary American writers. Marley's new novel, Glimmerglass, was actually released yesterday. So if you enjoy gorgeous prose and terrifying romance, it'll be well worth your time. Check out her blog for more details. Links on the Triple F, of course. It's read by, well, me. Because, again, I've grabbed all the good stories for myself. So here we have it. The Comb by Marley Yeomans People always say stories are true stories and I suppose they believe it often enough. This one, though, is true. True as true can be, as my mother used to say. Cross my heart and hope to die, a child says. They do, in the end, all hope to die. Nobody wants to be the moon's immortal lover who lives on thousands of years beyond his youth, a husk of a man. Titonus, the grasshopper, who rasps in the weeds when the moonlight touches him. Well, perhaps I'm wrong. Perhaps most people don't know that a fate can feel more alien than death. This tale recounts events that occurred some time ago. It might as well be a century, it seems so long past, when I was living in the pretty hill town of Fincastle, Virginia. Before these things happened, I'd been married for several years. My husband left me to chase after another woman. The next year he was sorry, but I refused to let him come home, and after the divorce I had what is commonly called a nervous breakdown. I was very different then from what I am now. In fact, I feel myself to be so very far from that person that I see her as a second and much younger woman. Poor child. Even after coming home from a rest cure in the mountains, she didn't feel any self-pity. She was too engrossed in herself to feel sorry. She wore her hair long and tangled. Her eyes were green with explosive specks of gold around the pupil. She was slim and small and serious, with a rose-coloured scar along her wrist where she had tried to bleed to death. Two boys had found her lying in a dirt lane leading into the woods, and it was lucky for her, or unlucky as she would have thought, that they were chasing after a dog and stumbled across her instead. Lucky, too, that they were scouts with medals and badges and pins, They leapt on her with glad cries, binding the arm with torn strips of shirt and splinting it for good measure with a stick they had been throwing for the dog. So that was she, staring up at the sky with eyes like glass. I feel sad for her, though she never would have felt that way. She believed that one must be proud and cold in the face of what can't be changed. She was a regular player queen with tragedy in her heart. Outwardly, we look very much the same. But I want to tell her that some day things will make more sense, that after many mistakes one day she will wake up knowing what matters and what is right and wrong. Such border crossings aren't uncommon. So she, or I, possessed the unwanted treasure of an entire summer with nothing to do but eat and sleep and walk in the fields and on the hills. My former work and companions had vanished, swept away in the aftermath to the divorce.' In a year or two I promised myself I would find other pursuits, more meaningful than the old ones that had failed me. I didn't want to visit my father's house, didn't wish to see people. If somebody stopped by, I might go out for a walk, would go very fast along the creek, not talking much, picking up fossils at the diggings in the bank. I liked fossils. The old dead life of things. They seemed both profound and simple. I felt a kinship with the leaden press of them against my palms. They were clams, mostly, some sort of mollusk with now and then a confetti of twisted shapes. Once a friend of my husband's told me their names, but the words skittered and fell through my mind as if through a colander with holes much too large. I couldn't meet his eyes. The syllables, each a solid Latin weight, tumbled apart. They also were a kind of fossil. Usually I hid when people came to call. Afterward I would peep out of the curtains to see who it had been. Sometimes I didn't even bother to do that. I was never sorry, never cared about missing any of them. I knew the way Fincastle would be gossiping about my illness. One brown study or willful mood and I'd be branded as a madwoman. But I refused to occupy a niche in the public mind. Let the village idiot hold that pedestal. I rarely thought much about my husband any more. I had talked him away in my rest cure in the mountains and he visited me only as a mood utterly black. Though I knew what it meant, I wasn't interested in naming that state of mind, just as I wasn't interested in knowing the Latin names of things that had lived eons ago. Pieces of me were lifeless, and couldn't strike light any more than if there had been two stones in a toddler's hands, two fossil mollusks clapped together to make a noise, and nothing else. When I slipped away from town, I liked to walk in the woods. I stayed away from the streets where I had once strolled greeting my neighbours, When the rector who lived on the corner came to call, I ducked low to the floor and held still, hiding behind a chair. I had nothing to say, and so I said nothing. After a while, anyone will give up and wander off, especially if there's no light on in the house. I went to bed when it got dark, so I never needed lamps. My method was to creep out of the back door a little after noon, not long after I woke, taking a handful of dry cereal and a bottle of water with me. I was hardly ever hungry in those days. My best cure for brooding too much was to traipse on the hills until I grew tired. Sometimes I'd drop asleep on a sunny slope and wake when the shadows touched my face. I liked feeling the sun on my shoulder blades, my hair turning as hot as if it were metal and not merely soft and human. Cuttable, like the rest of me. It was on one of these purposeless outings that I first saw him. I never expected or wanted to see anybody when I was out. I was intent on walking off something— That was all. Occasionally a detail of landscape gave me reason to pause, but not often. A flower, a stone, an oddity. Objects on the ground could attract my notice. It seemed to me that some day I might be able to gather these objects together and make a new world for myself, a fanciful idea that led to nothing. I seldom looked at the views that were all around me. They were too dominant, too far away from a downward gaze. Still, I saw him. I caught sight of a figure standing in the edge of the trees and, as I passed by, his eyes caught on mine and then broke away. I had no time to register anything except that he was young-looking, with something golden about his skin and hair. It gave me a flicker of unease, the reflex of old habits of carefulness to encounter someone so far from town. I shrugged. What difference did it make? And thought no more. Yet that was not the last time I saw him for I glimpsed the stranger less than a week later near the same spot while I was sitting on the remains of a stile. The second time he rode a horse and a dog ran at his heels. He nodded at me. Something in the encounter penetrated my absence. I thought it curious to meet a man on horseback in such a retired place. The moment had the air of being plucked out of time because there was something courtly about his manner. A slight bow, some old-fashioned cut to his clothing— The hound and horse were black and gleaming like creatures from a backcountry ballad. When a crow sliced across the sky, I thought, it should be midnight with ice sheathing the trees. As they passed, I saw that the mare's haunches were splotched as if by moonlight. After that meeting, I didn't cross that piece of hillside any more, going out of my way to seek places where I had never been. Nevertheless, it was on one of these alien walks that he first spoke to me. I had wandered into a little valley. The landscape was deserted with nothing but a stream swirling between two hills to make a sound. I felt sleepy and thought of taking a nap, but the sight seemed so very still and so unfrequented by birds that I changed my mind. An oak stood near the stream, its canopy more than half killed by mistletoe, only a few green leaves dangled from a branch. This ancient was a wonderful-looking tree, even as it stood dying, perhaps because it was dying. The scene reminded me of Caspar David Friedrich's Germanic visions with their decayed bowls, processions of monks, ruins and strange encounters in the sublime. A few years before, I had taken a fancy to Friedrich's paintings and now owned a shelf of books devoted to illustrating and discussing his work. In more energetic times, I had gone on pilgrimage to see a few of the pictures in museums, what is real being so much more alive than a copy." The romantic tree had caught my attention so completely that I didn't hear him coming down the hillside. When he spoke, I started and had the impulse to flee. I suppose it showed on my face. Wait, I'm sorry, I didn't mean to... I'm not... no, of course not. Tired, maybe. Not frightened, I told myself. Not frightened or even tired, no. Yet lightheadedness came over me, and my pulse was jittery under the scar at my wrist, as if the blood were once more seeking a way out. Specks of darkness swarmed before my eyes and then cleared slowly. He was still standing near me, one hand in the air. Perhaps he thought I might fall. There. I had looked someone full in the face, the first such gaze in a long time, and I was surprised to find that I could still be pleased by another human being's countenance so pleased that I felt a touch of unreality and wondered whether I had made him up. The eyes were hazel, and nearness showed that he was altogether rather uniform in colour, being a golden brown all over, face, arms, shoulder-length hair. The effect was curious. My eyes slid to his fingers. They were large with pronounced knuckles, knotty and older-looking than the rest of him. Otherwise he appeared close to my own age. I noticed a comb in his hand. Sit, he told me, gesturing towards a flat stone at the brink of the stream. I couldn't think what to do. Go on, he added. I won't hurt you. So I sat. Today I sighed at that girl. Why didn't she cry out or tell him to leave? Why didn't she fling herself away? He could have stopped her, of course, but I don't think he would have. After I had settled myself, he knelt on the grass beside the stone. He didn't begin with a comb, but with his fingers. Did I say my hair was uncombed? Had been untended for a long time? Mats that were halfway to dreadlocks hung below my shoulders. Thread by thread he tugged at the knots. Once he plucked a dried ox-eye daisy from somewhere near the crown of my head. I could smell his skin, the musk of sweat mingled with time. At one point I turned to look at the lowered face, the fingers unweaving my hair. For an instant he shifted his gaze from the task to my eyes. What mood I was in I hardly know. Under the rose-coloured scar at my wrist, the blood flew like a ribbon being unreeled. He leaned close to untangle a snag above my ear. His breath grazed my neck. The tick of the pulse there felt magnified under his eyes. The breeze pushed at some loosely bald hair snared in the grass. Have you ever seen flax pounded and threshed and dragged through hedges? When wind nudges the clouds of leftover filaments, they roll and catch on the barn floor or on stems in the yard. In an era when everything had its uses, they were gathered for spinning unless birds dared the barnyard and stole some for their nests. But my hair was knotted beyond use, and was far from flaxen. When his hands had made the orbit of my head, the stranger reached for the comb. Wielded, the wood shed a fragrance not quite gardenia, more delicate, less cloying. Afterward, he brought water from the stream in his cupped hands and moistened my hair, combing for a long time until once more I began to be sleepy. I've always loved this shade of red. His voice sounded low as if coming from a distance. I knew it would be wavy when untangled and dried. His face was near mine. For some moments I imagined this scene, "'that I would move towards him and that he would kiss me. "'But a cloud passed over the sky "'and my thoughts unaccountably drifted away to my ex-husband "'and how he had betrayed me and wanted to return when it was too late, "'my heart dead and only grief still springing up with life. "'When I came back to myself, he was gone. "'The comb remained, prettily carved from an unfamiliar tree and inset with flowers. "'Again I felt bewilderment. "'Had it all been a fancy?' I remembered the rest cure in the mountains, how my father had given me a queer, puzzled look when he came to visit, saying that I didn't seem entirely present and accounted for. But I had been given my release, my papers signed, and there was a comb that could not be explained away. The heart of each flower appeared to be a chip of ruby. I couldn't identify the wood, though the grain suggested tiger maple I had never met with any tree so green at its core. Relaxing. My hand disclosed a row of tooth marks stamped into my palm. Yes, the comb was an undreamt thing with heft and texture. I hadn't made it up. I jumped to my feet, scanning the forest and the fields. The day was perfectly clear. I could see hills in a cluster or two of distant houses. Until that moment, I had forgotten how lovely the Virginia hill country could be. But I couldn't catch a glimpse of... What was he called? I'd let a man rake his fingers through my hair and never asked his name. The next morning I failed to use the comb, but I looked in the glass and I was not displeased. My hair seemed to have grown since the day prior and to be more luxuriant and floating. I inhaled the scent of the greenwood comb, feeling a moment's giddiness. The sprinkle of freckles on the bridge of my nose, the gold brows and lashes, the mouth that my ex-husband had found lush and sensual when he first met me. I stared at the image as if at a second person. It had been a long time since I had stopped to inspect myself in a mirror. I bathed and put on a clean white dress. That summer I wore nothing but white. I had five or six old-fashioned cotton dresses with tucks and white embroidery, and I wore them constantly. Perhaps it was a form of mourning. No one had died and deserved black, but I might have been marking the length of a sorrow. Or perhaps I wanted to return to the innocence of childhood before my husband Hammett had wronged me. Lashing my hair back with a ribbon, I left for my walk, the comb safe in my pocket. The more I had examined it, the more I had admired the workmanship in the inlay of flowers and tendrils set in an exotic seeming wood. I rambled through places that had imperceptibly become favorites. Eventually, I found myself in the valley by the stream. I skirted the margin of the water, searching for signs of the stranger, but there was nothing. The Friedrich oak, with its few leaves and burden of mistletoe, seemed as shrouded in secrecy as before. Slowly I inspected the tree line. I found no sign of a path or any sort of habitation. I considered leaving the comb beside the brook, but in the end I carried it home, and I didn't return to the spot for some days. In that time I began to wash my clothes and hair daily, "'though I still kept to myself. what would it mean if I never saw him again? "'The glimpse of his face, chin tilted downward "'and eyes on my hair, haunted my imaginings. "'My neighbours would have been shocked to know "'that I had allowed a stranger to touch me so intimately, "'yet he hadn't so much as brushed my shoulder with his hand. "'He had been scrupulously careful not to offend. "'I thought many things about the man. "'Some of my speculations were monstrous. "'Yet when I remembered his eyes meeting mine, I couldn't believe any wickedness of him. After a week had passed, I took to making daily visits to the hillside above the stream, climbing to where I could survey the valley. The old pleasure in landscape, come back to me at last, made me feel more content than I had been in many months. Now and then I would haul the comb through my hair. It was lengthening, faster than was usual in the summertime, and I suspected that it might mean that I was returning to health and getting over my wrecked marriage. In the worst of my depression— Strands had fallen whenever I washed my hair. The next time I bathed, I would find that a delicate red bird's nest had collected at the drain. The woven cup would be dry and puffy, easily detached and tossed from the window. These days I seldom saw even a single thread on my shoulder. While I combed, I could forget the dark thoughts linked to my married life and enter a state that felt peaceful and empty. Once or twice I fell asleep in the sun, but never woke to find the stranger calling me by name. I half wanted to hear it, until I remembered that he couldn't possibly know mine, just as I didn't know his. One afternoon, perched on the crest of a hill, I spotted something moving in the west. As I held up a hand to shield my eyes, a shape seemed to flutter indistinctly against the brightness. High summer was a period of occasional mirage and daytime swelter. I blinked, settling the vision. It was a human figure alerted, I slid from my post on a boulder into the shadows. I was frightened at the idea that it might be him, and at the reverse, that it might be an even less familiar stranger. And so it proved. The second man charged forward with short, electrical jolts. His progress made me think with a start of Hammett, who had bristled with energy. This man was dressed all wrong for the climate, with heavy layers, some of them already shed and flung over one shoulder. Although the moustache gave the fellow a slightly comic appearance, like a cowboy in a spaghetti western, an authentic malevolence rolled off him. This, too, conjured my former husband, at least as he was in our final months together. For some moments I felt unmoored and dizzy-headed, until I managed to convince myself that this was someone entirely unknown to me. The landscape seemed resistant to him, or perhaps he'd picked a fight with the world. His arms punched through the atmosphere like a boxer's. He appeared to grip a weapon in one hand— "'but whether a gun or some other instrument I couldn't tell. "'I slipped behind a tree, "'gathering my dress in a bunch at my knees "'so that it would not billow out and betray me. "'He paused, his head lifting as if he were scenting the wind, "'and then loped up and down the stream like a dog, "'bending to touch the stone where I had sat while my hair was combed. "'When he snatched something from a patch of weeds, "'I gasped, sure it was a snarl of my hair. "'The find must have meant nothing to him, whatever it was, "'because he jerked his hand outward.' Casting it away, I remained hidden behind the trunk of the tree until he had been gone for many minutes. Venturing to the rock, I surveyed the trees and meadow. I might have stayed there until dark, unsure whether I could safely depart if the stranger with the comb had not come along. He appeared to the west, travelling on foot easily and quickly. Perhaps he caught sight of me as he crossed a low ridge and passed into the valley. His face was turned towards mine. I felt a compulsion to warn him about the other man. The slope sped my feet. The white dress blew behind me as I spilled out of the woods, racing through the meadow of thyme and wildflowers. I almost collided with him. When he reached an arm to catch me, I blurted out the story what there was of it. He didn't seem in the least surprised. And what's your name? Where have you been? He looked around before answering. There wasn't a streak of haze, The view so clear that from the hilltop above i had seen the dots of people moving near a distant clump of farmhouse and outbuildings. Far away, he looked serious, adding, Don't worry about me. I can take care of myself. And Flynn, he told me. The name is Flynn. Yours is Penelope. Penelope Ophi, your maiden name, that is. He gave me the merest quirk of a smile. You knew that, of course. I was alarmed, wondering how he could know such a thing about me. A thin gold necklace that I had worn when I was a little girl with penny in cursive floated up from memory. How do you... I followed you last time to make sure you got home all right. And I spoke to one of your neighbours, an old lady with her hair in a twist. Or she talked to me and she told me your name. And probably the story of my life as she sees it, I said indignant. So that was how. He would know everything about me, I supposed, including the way the locals were nosing around, checking for any signs of deviation from the norm of Fincastle sanity. Yes, he said. But I wasn't trying to spy. She pinned me to the sidewalk and told me more than I needed to know. She's worried, I'd guess. I felt in my pocket for the comb. Pressing a fingertip against the teeth and the shape of the petals had become a habit. Here, let me... He took the comb from my hand and began sliding it through my hair. You've got hair like a sea to drown in. Half excited and half afraid because he'd followed me home, I stood passively, letting the teeth sink through my hair. He would have seen my cottage with the stone foundation and the cherry next to the porch, the hibiscus blooming in the side yard. Mrs. Beckless would have told him about my. about what had happened to me and what a shame it had been and how I had taken on. She couldn't have helped herself. I whispered. Don't worry. I think my own thoughts. He was combing my hair in long, dreamy strokes, and I had the sense once again that it had grown wildly of late, that it was even now striving to match the sweep of his motion. I put my hand out and touched him on the arm, a bit timidly because just then he seemed foreign, so peculiar in his first approach to me, so striking in his colouring and height. How incongruous he must have appeared, bending to catch Mrs. Beckless's gossip. My face felt flushed and hot from the rush down the hill, but he seemed cool, and as if he was enjoying the sensation of his arm gliding along my hair. And it was longer than before. Maybe the waves had loosened, uncrinkling in the dry warmth of the day. I wanted to know plain and simple things. Who are you? Where do you live? Where do you come from? What do you do for a living? These are the sorts of questions that people ask. But I couldn't bring myself to say them. When I touched his sleeve, he glanced at me, then gave a little crooked smile before bending to kiss me, one arm pressing me close while the other went on, stroking through my hair. In one lifetime, there must be only a scattering of memorable kisses. Perhaps most are forgotten, except as they are recalled by an unusual setting or time, a kiss after a return from battle, a kiss by a waterfall under the moon, A single star-crossed kiss from the person for whom one was intended from the foundation of the worlds. One kiss, but no more after. His skin gave off heat, and where our bodies touched I felt something that I had never known before. My blood vessels and nerves seemed to have leaped to his. When he leaned away I felt a sense of deprivation different from anything I'd ever felt before. "'All I wanted was to press against him, to be taken into him. "'I suppose that sounds strange. "'I have to remind myself how very little I knew of Flynn, "'that what I wanted was to let a man I'd barely met "'thresh away my clothes until I lay naked under the shadow of the trees. "'No.' "'He gathered the sheaf of my hair and tugged. "'Come on. He's coming back. I have a feeling that I don't like.' "'We jumped the stream and took cover in the woods below.' Can you go home by yourself? His eyes were no longer on me, but on the high ground. Yes, of course, but... Then go. I turned my face away, not wanting to be rejected. I'd had enough of that. Wait. Here. He thrust the comb into my pocket, and I shut my hand over it, feeling the faint, trembling life in it subside. And this, too. He took a chain from his neck and looped it around mine. What's that? Keep it. In case I don't see you for a while. Inside your dress, so no one spies it. Maybe I'll give it to you properly another time. He ventured into the clearing and stared at the horizon and tree line, before subsiding back into the shade. What do you mean, in case you don't see me? I want you to come home with me. I want to see you as well, it's not that. Just... hard to explain. In the dark under the trees, we kissed again. Go on pushed me away. Dusk was drifting over the slope, and sunset gashed the twilight above the crown of the highest hill. I must have paused for a backward glance a dozen times, even though I couldn't see him through the trees. Gold and crimson gouges lingered in the sky. Once I reached the grassy path across the fields, I ran most of the way to town. It was a bright, moonlit evening. I hoisted my skirts and raced along the sidewalk toward home, startling Mrs. Beckless out with her terrier. I gave them a moonstruck smile and laughed as she exclaimed that I had given her such a fright. Inside the cottage I switched on all the lamps. In the mirror my hair fell past my waist. I stared at my flushed reflection for a long time sure that I had subtly changed during the day. After a while I sat down on the unmade bed and began combing. It made me sleepy, I noticed, and once I felt half frightened by the tickling sensation in my scalp. At midnight... I was awakened by a spatter of pebbles striking the window. I glimpsed Flynn's face, the forehead and cheekbones scored by an ugly slash. He wouldn't come in, wouldn't let me come out. "'It's all right. It's not the first time,' he whispered. "'I have certain enemies here and elsewhere. We've gone on this way for eons.' "'Let me help you,' I urged. Yet I did what he asked.' and handed out a package of gauze and some ointment, begging him to come inside all the while. I was shameless, but our hands barely touched. He vanished into the dark. Mechanically, I picked up the comb and comforted myself, drawing the teeth through my hair until I fell asleep, sprawled on the tumble of bedding. In the morning, the lamps were still burning. I walked through the six rooms of my house, clicking off switches. On the slope and valley that morning... There wasn't the least evidence of Flynn or of the other man. I had expected something. Blood drops on the grass, a corpse, a weapon? I wouldn't have been startled by anything in the shape of a blunt instrument, but there was nothing to cause surprise. The afternoon crawled by, and the next. A swathe of days, each warm and sunny and empty. I no longer thought about my former husband at all, except to wonder what I had ever seen in him. I had somehow mixed up Hammett with a second stranger, the image of Flynn burned in my thoughts and would not go out. One afternoon I curled up on a sweet-smelling bank of thyme and, like a person enchanted, thought only about him. I didn't plan to leave for home until the first tinge of rose appeared over the hill, and even then I refused to go without a final willing of him to appear. Flynn! 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 The name rebounded from the slopes, seeding the air with clamour. Against the sunset I made out, A wavering darkness. It solidified and slid across the field of pink. I wasn't sure what I had seen. Remembering how the other man had scored Flynn's face, I retreated toward the forest while the sky darkened past cobalt. Near the stream I paused, as gripped by the nocturnal songs of catadins and peepers as I had once been by an unnatural quiet. A nightjar cried out as she swept past and away. Bats were flittering overhead, hunting for mosquitoes, and the wind made a rushing noise in the treetops. It must have been the breeze that flung away my fear. I didn't stir. My white dress glowed, a beacon showing where I had stopped to listen to the chorus of night. Hush, it's me. Flynn's hand found mine. Anybody else about? You brought the comb. Gladness flashed through me. For that instant I felt my nerves turning to light and thought, I am a branch of gold. I always have it. The words trembled on the air. It was true. My skin had even begun to take on the fragrance of the wood. And there's just the two of us. Here. Kneel down. He had dropped to his knees and, as I soon saw, was making a hurried teepee from lint and sticks and shreds of bark. I want the sun, he murmured. "'He fished in his pockets for what proved to be a flintstone "'and a small, C-shaped bar of steel. "'Hurriedly striking sparks, "'he nursed the fire until it illumined our hands and faces. "'I've never seen anyone do that so quickly. "'Around your neck, the necklace. "'Do you still have it?' "'I fished the string from inside my dress. "'I'd examined the disc repeatedly, "'but could not detect anything through the hard red wax "'stamped with an image of two trees. "'Though tempted, I had left it alone.' Flynn heated the covering in the flames until it was soft and could be easily stripped away. It's too soon, but I can't help that. I don't have the time. He showed me a pair of rings glinting on his palm. A streak of the coating clung to his skin. For my family, rings like these have been the sign of union for hundreds of years. Will you take one and wear it? I could have said no. Yet I could no more have uttered the word no "'and flown to the top of the ash tree at the peak of the hill. "'Where did he come from? "'And did he intend to use the ring in the same manner that Hammett had done? "'I didn't ask. "'What are the letters? "'It's not English, not any language I recognise. "'I picked up the smaller of the two and held it close to the firelight. "'It was surprising how much writing could fit on the inside of a band. "'That is the binding, in the old, almost forgotten tongue.' But what is it? The binding is... is binding. He stared at the darkness. Light flickering on his cheek made his skin look like the smooth surface of a statue cast in gold. Not like other promises. It calls on seven names of God and the corners of the universe and the elements of creation, on the hoop of time and the word that began the world. It is indissoluble. It says that we can't be parted, even if we are very far apart. "'I hardly know...,' I broke off. "'It was no use to say that I hardly knew him. "'No, I wouldn't wish for more time, a proper courtship, the perfect moment. "'I knew that I would let him put the ring on my finger, whatever it meant, if he asked again. "'The yielding was in me like a desire for annihilation, "'just as I wanted him to render me to nothing, "'to dissolve my body into his by the touch of his hands. "'But I don't understand the words. "'It doesn't matter.' They'll bind all the same. He reached as if to take hold of my hair and then drew back. Only the willingness matters. Will will it hurt me? Will I be sorry? Sometimes, I suppose, he said. Is there anything unalloyed? You will be as good as your name, often waiting. My business will call me elsewhere. You'll come to have purposes apart from mine. "'Good as my name. "'Like Penelope with Ulysses, you mean. "'Penelope with her tapestries. "'There was a child, a boy, wasn't it?' "'Things appear in patterns,' he said, "'though the words remained oblique to me. "'That doesn't mean they aren't different. "'It's just the nature of lives. "'There are only so many ways to arrange them. "'It's the same way with me and the man you saw, "'as old as Cain and Abel, I suppose.' It was an odd way to answer. He was looking away from me, but when I spoke his name, he turned. Will you wear it? I nodded, feeling that the ground under me was the lip of an abyss that I could neither fathom nor resist. The metal was neither yellow gold nor silver. It appeared lustrous, rather like white gold, though the colour shifted by the shimmer of firelight. When he slid it home, the band chilled me, but in an instant became warm. Until then I had been alarmed, my fingers trembling so visibly that Flynn had taken my hand between his. I imagined the intricate, tiny words inside the ring slipping through the pores of my skin and flying through the chambers of my heart. Now put the other on me. When I hesitated, he added, One can't be worn without the other. In each of the rings, a twist in the metal made the shape into a Mubius band. I picked up the one remaining and looked through it at the flames. Infinite. I hardly knew that I had spoken when he nodded and held out his hand. Though I expected that the ring would never pass the second knuckle, it easily nestled into place. Is that all? If this was a ceremony of marriage, it seemed as crude as a pair of Puritans jumping over a broomstick. Simple, isn't it? Just a circle like a wheel or the face of a clock. He scattered the fire with his bare fingers, sparks flashing around the ring. I don't know. The unaccustomed weight made me uneasy, and I ran a finger over the twist in the metal. There's one thing I need to tell you. After tonight, I may not see you for a while. I can't help it. That's why I wanted this to happen now. How long? Oh, I don't know. He tucked a strand of hair behind my ear. Until your hair touches your knees, perhaps. A good long time. I'll use the comb. Yes. Use the comb, that will pass the time. I watched him, fearful that I had done something transgressive, though it did not feel wrong. Flynn reached for my fingers. I felt the same sense of nervous conjunction with his body, worse than before. When he was absent, would the branches of my blood flow in me and elsewhere, joining us in secret? Just as the sunset was shut out by bars of cloud, a fine rain fell. Afterward, the fireflies came out and the stars— I don't know where we wandered, for I was quickly lost. We seemed to go a long way in the forest, stopping now and then to press close. Again I felt that our blood and nerves made a single circuit. In time we came to a small pavilion. Pavilion may seem a strange choice of word, but I can't think what else to call the roofless place where we made our strange, potent love under the moon. The surge and crest of wanting seemed nothing like anything I had known before akin to the ocean in depth and mystery and tidal force. Afterward I would sleep at his side like a shell tossed to the beach, and then wake as the tide wakes, mounting towards the crash of rollers that hurls the seaweed and crystal onto the shore. Silver walls rose up, broken by arches. As the night wore on, they became more and more distinct, as if tugged into being by the moon. When Flynn fell asleep, I stepped to an archway and looked out to see what appeared to be the same stream and the hillside where we had begun, so that our travels through the night seemed also like the pattern of a ring. Once I dreamed as I'd never dreamed before. I was a harp, and he the harper. I was the sea, and he a drowned sailor. I was a red tree under three blue moons, and he a bird that cried the name of dawn from my branches as a star rose over the world's edge. We slept and woke a thousand times, "'until the rope of sheets hung from the bed soaked with salt. "'If there's a child,' he told me, "'don't call him by name, don't christen him, "'until I see his face. "'I knew Flynn in the most ancient sense of the word, "'knew every inch of his body, the hardness of his chest, "'the long bones of the legs, the planes of the face, "'the wool of hair near the crown of his head. "'His words became familiar, and his gestures.' He liked to laugh. I hadn't thought that he would be so playful. Hours and hours fled while he combed my hair, the two of us sitting in the bed with the hair spilling across us. If I close my eyes, I can feel the stroke of the comb. I picture his gold body and my white one, with the ravel of red sprangling over us. In that first passion, it never occurred to me to question him, and even now I know that part of what I love in him is a mystery. Since then I have thought about how the Nephilim flew out of eternity to mate with the daughters of men, according to Genesis. I have pondered the medieval and dark age evidence of the northern Elves, friends to mortals. I have lain in a sea of pennyroyal, reading about the people of the fairy hills. When the wind bedevils the fallen leaves, it means the Sith are riding by. Like the White Queen, the figure of time himself is said to run and to stand still all at once under their mounds. There, it's the stroke of midnight at the end of December, when the old year and the infant year are one quivering self. With the comb in my hand, I have a feel for that stopped quickness, where one can go clockwise and widdershins at the same time. Alone in my bed I've sifted Eros and Psyche, Penelope and Ulysses, the two trees of Bacchus and Philemon. Endless romances impinge on mine. I've dreamed of a green couch in a house of earth, with beams that are cedars and rafters that are pines, I've dreamed a manse on fire, a flooded chamber. when I've wakened in the night, I've imagined other worlds distant or overlapping with our own. I've studied the permutations in the patterns of human stories, said to be limited to nine. I've even feared that only the first meeting happened, and all since has been the work of the comb. And yet I keep combing a thousand wild surmises have swept into my thoughts. I have let all of them go. Whoever wanted a mystery to be unknotted and fully known was mad, and I am sane. Facing it is like stumbling on a grimy tallow-flecked masterpiece, still alive with the spirit of the dead, the brush-strokes of a moving hand, the captured forms of mortals, evidence and riddle. Or perhaps it is like a story that will not give up its last secret but insists on strangeness. The vow and the seven names are still pressed against my skin. Our night, like the ring, seemed infinite. And yet the moment came when I found myself cold on the hillside, dew sprinkled on my nakedness. I had to face the absence of my lover. Then I felt dismay. Not that the night had been a dream, for that would be too simple. I feared madness in the vow. "'feared that I might have jeopardised my very soul "'in some obscure manner yet to be revealed, "'feared even that I had bound myself "'to some white shadow of my former husband, "'his opposite, his mysteriously conceived other. "'Shivering, I washed my face in the brook "'and pulled on my dress. "'The comb lay in the grass, waiting for my hand. "'I made my way home. "'What else was there to do? "'Forebodings passed, and I began to miss Flynn. "'After a few weeks... When I realised that there would indeed be a child, I sold my cottage in Fincastle and bought twenty acres of land, including the hillside and valley where we first met. The purchase took much of what I had, cash from the sale plus an inheritance from my mother, but I had enough left over to live modestly and to pay our local masons for constructing a one-room cottage with arched windows and a stone porch overlooking the stream. Each afternoon I walked from rented rooms stacked with cartons to the valley, watching the progress of the builders. I made amends to Mrs. Beckless and the rector and other neighbours who had cared about me and wished me well. A month ago, the house was finished. Already Pennyroyal is colonising the scarred ground beside the porch and wind flings the odour of time through the screens. The comb stays in or near my hand all day long and every night I slide its teeth through my hair until I fall asleep. Not a single elf lock mars the strokes. It makes the time pass, I remind myself. The infant in my belly stops his kicking when I comb. I sing so he'll know my voice when he's born. I remember that my lover said, Him, and I believe that the baby will be a boy. Any day now I'll look into his eyes and hold him in my arms, and when Flynn sees the face of our child, we'll choose a name. Ripples of hair can almost tickle my knees. The time draws near. Like a night-blooming cereus, A new purpose is budding in the dark, waiting to startle me with its blossom. Seasons alter the landscape, and one day seems to whisper secrets to the next. Twice I've seen the violent man lurking in the trees, watching for Flynn to step into the valley, and once I spied a riderless horse spangled with moonlight flying along the stream. If I wake in the night, the arches of the windows look faintly silver, and the stream is silver too, and all waiting seems about to end. Until the hour comes, I rest easy in what I don't know. Some day I'll ask this second husband, stranger to whom I have promised myself, to tell me the seven names and the vow. I am becoming all longing, like a voice prisoned in a shell, but soon I will be changed, as joyous as a tide that hurls treasure to the sands. Something is turning in me, a child and a desire. On the hills, Trees are green that in winter threw patterns of veins onto the sky. Eternity is wrapped around my finger. Breezes whirl in my house of windows, steeping the air with time. I am waiting, waiting. Will I break into blossom? Am I about to be born? The comb drips its honey into my hair. All the world is a mystery. I I don't know what I'm more envious of, her romance or her hair. Well, that brings us to the end of the show. Please remember that we operate under a Creative Commons 3.0 license. Share and enjoy, but don't change or sell. And if you like what we bring you, you can share the link on any network you like. In the meantime, take it easy, keep smiling, and don't forget that favourite beverage.